morning and welcome to Editing Aloud. Um, in a week of level three confusion, we had the president on Sunday evening telling us in a very mature and risk adjusted sort of way that we were transitioning to level three on June the 1st. We have since been promised briefings which never happened, had toing and froing from the Ministry of Health on whether some regions will be different to others, and general confusion and mixed messages reigning. And I have joining the panel this evening Neva Machetla, who is Senior Economist at Trade and Industrial Policy Strategies, which has started publishing a very useful um, bulletin weekly on, on the virus, on the modeling, on the economy. And I wanted to start by asking Neva, Neva, do you get why this whole process is so confused and taking so long when we've been talking about a sort of level, risk-adjusted, phased easing out of the lockdown. I mean, what is going on with level three? I think actually the, the framework for level three is quite clear. I think the real, everybody agrees that opening up the economy is much harder than closing it down. And the reason is we now have to manage the risks and we actually have to do more managing the risks as individuals, whereas before government just puts in a rule and everybody just, it's easy. You just stay in your home. But once you start opening up, what you open up, who benefits from the opening up, how they open up, all of those issues become very difficult. And I think what you can see is also many people have no qualms about lobbying for themselves, no matter what the cost to society. And that's also hard to deal with. And the other thing is because it's, you know, we keep saying we'll be guided by the science, but in fact, the science doesn't say which risks to take. It just says you have to decide which risks to take, and it will tell us where the biggest risks are and how we can manage them. But the science doesn't tell you, should you open up restaurants or should you open up churches? That's a society based on society, social values. But on that very point, Neva, um, what is the logic of allowing churches and other religious uh, services to reopen and keeping restaurants closed? I mean, surely we are allowing, we are allowing sort of what in other parts of the world have proved to be super spreader events to happen despite all the risks we're trying to control. I mean, what is the economic logic, logic or any logic of opening churches? There's no economic logic. I think that one reason people are upset is there an, was an implicit trade-off in the reopening, which is we're only going to care about economic activity. So we'll take the risks on economic activity and we compensated by, for it by taking no risks on anything else. So we won't take a risk so that you can have a social life. We won't take a risk so that you can see your family. All of those things we won't take risks on. And then they made an exception for churches. Now, if you were standing outside, you'd be saying, well, this must be a country that really values churches. Or this must be a country where churches have a very strong political voice. Take your pick. Rob Rose, is that, is that sort of tension between sort of churches versus restaurants, if you like, between opening some social events but not others, some parts of the economy not others, is that a tension or a set of choices that concerns you, Rob Rose? Well, I, I certainly think it's concerning because it does, it does create a legitimacy issue um, for the government in terms of its, in terms of its regulations. So if you're, going to, if you're going to allow something and you say you're taking a scientific approach to it, and it's more of a political decision than a scientific decision, it becomes harder and harder to justify, which means that if you're relying on people to be responsible and do the right thing, as the president said on Sunday night, I think it becomes a lot harder to, to convince people of that when you make decisions that on the, on the face of it don't appear rational and certainly haven't been explained properly. 
Lucanio, uh, what, what is your take on this? No, I would totally agree with Rob completely there. I mean, it's quite obvious from what this, this is not a decision that's based on science. It's a decision based on politics, expediency, on who lobbies better than, than who. So, I mean, this, we are all supposed to be making sacrifices here on, for the benefit of the whole of society. But if you're going to have these exceptions that aren't explained, I mean, what is the difference between 50 people sitting in a church where they're going to be singing and hugging and doing whatever they're going to be doing, then somebody going to the market theater and watching a play and sitting at the back and not talking to anybody. So why is one allowed, why not one not allowed? I mean, it doesn't make any logical sense, which then means the whole process cannot really be legitimate, because otherwise then people will say, what is the point of having the lockdown? <laughs> you know, then it's hard then to explain. And, and to actually defend it in any kind of logical way that's based on science or based on logic or that's based on the idea of solidarity that we all need to sacrifice equally. Actually, Neva, let me come back to you because health-wise, what is the logic? We've had in the past week quite a debate about the modeling um, on which some of these decisions are supposedly based. And you, um, you wrote about uh, the modeling in your column this week, uh, headline, we have the power to defy South Africa's COVID modeling um, figures. Just run us through what are the modeling issues. Um, we had the health ministry sort of unveiling everybody's models and letting them debate them. We've had the health, we've had one set of models from them. We've had another set of models from the World Health Organization. First of all, what are the models telling us? And second of all, what do those models mean? It was an, an, and is it inevitable that we go the way of the model, which was the question you raised in your column? Neva? I mean, I think that the models are originated so that departments of health could plan what they need in the way of inputs if there's a pandemic or an epidemic. And so basically, they basically say if we know or assume certain things about how the, how the virus spreads, how many people are likely to get it, which means how many people are susceptible, which in this case is everyone because it's a new virus. So nobody has immunity and there's no vaccine. And then we say how many people are likely to get it and how will that, we assume there'll be a peak. When will the peak come? How high will it be? And then we can say things like how many ICU, ICU beds do we need? And that's actually how the national epidemiological model is structured. And the only point I was making is that everybody agrees that if we all adopt less risky behavior, less risky in terms of the, the way COVID spreads, that we can actually minimize the peak. And some countries have avoided a major peak altogether. You know, countries as diverse as New Zealand, Germany, and Singapore have largely avoided the kind of spread, out of control spread we've seen in Europe and the US. The trouble is that the model doesn't actually add, try to simulate different kinds of behavior. They actually haven't done the research to say, you know, if you are going to go to church, how do you reduce that risk? Or should we let people go to church? Is that risk too big? They just build in assumptions about different levels of lockdown and how that will affect the spread in a very aggregate way. So from that standpoint, it's not telling us what our public health policy should be or what we should do as individuals. It's just saying, if you wanted to stock up your hospital, this is the scenario you should plan for. And there is a bit of a sort of risk there as well, because honestly, if you've ever done a budget model you don't really have a whole, whole big interest in saying, let's underestimate how many ICU beds we have. Because obviously it's much worse for society not to have enough ICU beds than to have too many. And that's why if you look at, for instance, in the US, they consistently have more ICU beds, more ventilators, 
things like that than they need. And that's because these models are, I would argue, structurally designed to overestimate rather than underestimate. But the real thing is when you say the science should dictate the behavior, they don't tell us what our behavior should be. Is anyone actually telling us what our behavior should be? And I want to address this question to, to Rob and to Lucania, who after all are in the communications business. I mean, Rob, is, are we getting the messaging that would encourage people to modify their behavior? You know, I do think I do think we have done pretty well. Occasionally, the president has certainly sounded pretty good in terms of a cohesive message and a singular message. Um, the problem is that he's being undercut by regulations that that cause the message to be undermined. Um, you know, the, the church one is 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 again an example. We've had some rather silly ones in the past, but the church one, you know, is indication that they they haven't really got the messaging right. Because if you're going to do this, you need to explain it well. And you need to explain why it's not going to lead to the same situation as you had in South Korea, where a church gathering was linked to a large outbreak, and certainly in the Free State we had that. So I think that I think the messaging has been has been not cohesive enough. All the all the evidence suggests you need to keep to one message, make sure people are on track, and not undermine it, not have confusion about what you're saying. The U.S., the U.K. Sorry, Boris Johnson has certainly been all over the place with his messaging, and I think that it's led to, you know, it's led to. A, uh, legitimacy crisis in their lockdown too, in the same way that we've had one. Lucanio? I would... The uh, narrative, the communications... I, would totally, I, I mean, I would totally agree with that with Robert Mania. I mean, every second week or so, you, you get the president and he gives a, what is normally a good speech, and, 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 and the message is consistent in terms of personal behavior, you know, the, the normal stuff, wash your hands, keep your distance, you know, which is all good and good, and then but then you, and then, and then the very next day, mostly you undermine then with different messaging from the different ministers and, and also all the regulations that don't seem to have anything to do with health. You know, we, we spoke last week quite a lot about the regulations about what you could buy or not buy in terms of clothing with no explanation how this links to anything to do with how to stop the spread of the virus. When it looks like Minister Patel yesterday spoke about it yesterday, like after like, I don't know how many weeks. And now the, the rationale was, okay, we needed to limit this thing, so, so you spend less time in the shops. I mean, there could have been a lot of ways to explain that two weeks ago, not like after two weeks of controversy, two weeks of like uh, editorials on the FM and everywhere else, you know. I think like the messaging has been rather been undermined by what's happened after the big speeches. Because I, I think in terms of the president and the health minister, they've, they've actually been quite good as individuals. Rob? What I wanted to say is Kanyo is completely Kanyo is completely right. It's not about what you say only, because what, what you say has been fine. You know, the president has said the right things. It's about what you do. So the president will say one thing and everyone thinks, well, great, this is where we're going. And then you and then you do something else. You pass a regulation that looks baffling or, or you or you have new evidence that comes out. And I think Niv is right. This is, you know, we should respond to the data on this. But the data comes out and says 90% of smokers are still getting cigarettes. And they're probably getting lower quality, more dangerous cigarettes. And then you have zero response to that, as if, it's, as if that didn't happen. Um, and I think that's, that's the danger in terms of keeping legitimacy going and the communication message. Neva, we've, we've, Neva, we've got one minute to the break. But I mean, in short, um, would you want to see the messaging and, the, and the, yeah, the messaging improved, whether by saying or by doing? And in what way? I just think we need a lot more detail about specific situations. That saying to people, you need to social, socially distance and you need to wash your hands. And then they go into work 
in a retail store where there's no place to eat lunch except sitting on the curb with your colleagues? And do people then get the message that don't sit too close to your colleagues in those circumstances? I think that's why in other countries that have succeeded, they've had every day, they've had the president or the minister or somebody going through this stuff in tremendous detail. In effect, we're all trying to change our habits. And you know, it takes a long time to change habits. And I want to talk now about job losses and about the relief measures that have been put in place and whether they are working. Neva, what kind of estimates are we getting on what job losses and unemployment is going to go to given the sort of pace at which we are now easing out? And given that it's looking pretty tragic, um, you know, what do we do about it? You know, we don't have fixed figures on the numbers. Around the quarter of, if you look at the applications for UIF, it's around 2.5 million people. That's about a quarter of the formal labor force. Um, and informal jobs obviously are, have also been hit. So that's people who've actually applied for support. There are other people where companies are trying to maintain them without actually going to the UIF. What we know is that under level three, if every, you know, the people who are permitted to go back, it's about 80 to 90% of workers are permitted to go back, depending on whether people who are not working at home go back to site. But it does open the doors to people who are basically excluded of people in recreational services like restaurants, personal services like haircutting, and domestic workers unless they're in childcare. At least that's the indication we have so far. They haven't done the regulations yet, it might change. So that would mean that basically another 5 million people could go back to work. That, of course, brings risks in terms of public transport, in terms of being at work and catching COVID. You know, there's been a big outbreak on the mines just in the last couple of weeks where we've seen four or 500 people, well, three or 400 people um, being reported ill in the last couple of weeks. What you can see is when you go from, when we went from level five to level four, there was a noticeable increase in economic activity. So there should be a bigger one now because this is a bigger opening up of the economy. What we don't know is how many of those jobs will actually go back because people have lost income. International markets have also locked down. So whether the demand will be there to let all those companies open up, it's not so Lucania, will the demand be there to, I mean, will, will the opening up actually open the economy up? Or will it in fact prove less sure, I was gonna ask Neva, successful than we think? Oh. You're gonna ask Neva that. Sorry, Lucania? I was actually going to ask you two questions about it. The first one was, yeah, how much activity would actually would expect? And also, you mentioned the issue with the mines, you know, with the numbers of infections. But I wonder how much of that is actually due to the fact that miners have come back, or to the uh, at work, or rather to the fact, you know, we we had that lockdown situation where we left, where there was four days, we allowed people to travel across the country, and then we had to bring them back into the mines. So, do you have an idea actually how many of these people have actually been infected at the mines, or i.e., at their places of work, or, or whether decisions that were made before that that actually meant they've come back infected? Yeah. Well, firstly, in terms of how much will come back, honestly, I I personally don't know. As you know, the Reserve Bank thinks we're going to see a seven percent decline in GDP. That's for the year. That's a very big decline. Huh? Part of it's because we're not an island. Everybody else is in the same position. Even China expects to just barely grow this year. And they've been the main driver for growth in the world econ economy for decades. So I think we have to, you know, this is the thing. There will be no, we're not going back to December 2019. Either in terms of our ability to move through society without physical distancing or in terms of the economy. 
And I think we all have to figure out how do we then reconstruct the economy so that we end up better off five years from now rather than thinking it will just bounce back and we go back to being who we were three, three or four months ago. In terms of the mines, look, they, you know, it's, you expect the disease to start showing up two weeks after opening. That's when it showed up. Of course, I'm sure some miners brought it there and quite possibly from the Eastern Cape or possibly from places like Johannesburg or Hammondscrawl or wherever they were staying. But the fact is it clearly spread quickly in those circumstances. I don't think it's a coincidence that the biggest outbreak is at the deepest gold mine in South Africa, because that's when you're in the cage for, you know, half an hour to an that's hour. Mpuneng, is it? Mpuneng is the biggest outbreak so yeah. far, Neva. Yeah, yeah. So, yes. I mean, and it just came up on today and the day before. And is, does that mean we should not be reopening? I mean, what does that imply um, for the reopening? Rob, what, what, is, what is your take on this? I mean, what does that imply in terms of the way forward? I mean, the infections on the minds. I mean, I think it's, I think it's about, I mean, it's about basically getting personal responsibility back and making sure that, that the employers are doing the right things. Um, and I think that it's an indication that a lot of companies perhaps are thinking that it's going back to December 2019. It's either off or it's on. Um, and people just come back to work. And I don't know if they've done quite enough preparation. Um, I mean, having said that, I think the mines are pretty advanced in terms of their, their health care. Um, and I think they're very aware of the consequence of, of this happening. Um, but I think that it's, it's a wake-up call that this is going to happen. And it's about how you then manage, manage the impact on your workforce, which is going to be, which is going to be, it's going to happen a lot more in various other industries. Neva? Well, of course, what you were saying earlier, Neva, about, you know, behavior across the board and communication. Because like, it's one thing for me in the office to have all these protocols, but that if people are going to church and not observing them on Sunday, and then they come to the office on Monday, then it almost So unless we get everything right, then we're not gonna get this right, are we? Like, if you don't think about all the small things and communicate to people every day, I think what you were saying about in other places where the government is talking every day, or the president is talking every day. I mean, we hear from our president every two weeks or so. It's speech on the Sunday. It's like, the Christmas day. Okay. People come listen and then nothing for another two weeks. I think, <laughs> I think like, I sound, mean, look, I think, like, look, if you look, Anya, your sound is breaking up. So let me bring Neva in. Neva? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think maybe we needed to be more differentiated about the risk on different kinds of lines. That a very... That Everybody said from the start, I mean, the minister said from the start that the issue was the transport to the mines and the cages going into the mines first and foremost. Because if, if you're going to be in a cage going three kilometers down, you know, that's half an hour to an hour in a cage. And even if you're socially distanced, you're going to have the air will be saturated. So you just need one or two people there and you've got a big spreader event. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but the, that's, what, that's the way people say that it's the contained space for long periods. That's why churches are risky because... If you keep it to half an hour and then you leave, you'll probably be fine. But if people are singing in a hall for an hour or two, then it gets very risky. And so to me, part of the issue with the mines is we maybe should have looked at these mines more carefully and said, where is the big risk? Which of the mines can open? Not just have the same rules for all of them. Because by all accounts, they've done a good job. And they really, they found these things quickly. They've been doing the screening. They've been doing the testing. They've been doing the quarantining um, as efficiently as anybody else. Can I turn to the relief the measures? About the risk. G given that a lot of workers 
are certainly 10% or more of workers in the workforce are not going to go back to work. And, and if we hit risks, we might even take some workers out of the workforce again. Um, what do we do about the relief measures? Because we've had the unemployment insurance fund really not delivering as expected on the the 40 on the TERS relief. Um, we've had social grants hitting all sorts of issues. Um, Neva, what do we do about the fact that relief measures don't seem to be reaching those who need it most? Look, actually they're doing, they, they have been getting better. I think it was a massive task to turn those things around because unlike some other countries, we don't have the automatic measure. So TERS says they've paid out 14 billion rands and reached a couple of million workers. I know a lot of employers are saying they're getting less than they expected, but TERS is saying, well, they, they claim too high. So by the end of this month, I think most people who deserve it will have gotten something. The grants, the main thing they did with the social grants, and the point is it works because the systems were in place, was they increased the child support grant, which reaches about 15 million people. Yeah? They didn't give them enough, but they gave them something because the child support grant was only ever about half the poverty line. So now it will be close to three quarters of the poverty line. So the COVID, the special COVID grant, which goes to people who've never had a grant before, was always going to be incredibly hard to roll out because you have to you know, get everybody's contact details and their names and their this and their that, their ID, verify it, whatever. They haven't been fast about paying that out. I would like to think it will start going sooner. What they have done that is at least a step forward is they're not going to pay it on one day. So when people get logged in and their details are verified, they will be paid quite soon. So hopefully it's not like they didn't get it this month, so they won't get it till next month. Hopefully they'll continually get it through the next several weeks. But I mean, there are about 3 million people who've applied. It's very, very hard to verify details for 3 million people. You know, that's like more than the entire city of Cape Town. What we haven't discussed, in fact, is exactly Cape Town. Um, we've only got a few minutes left, but um, Rob, the, the, the Cape Town has really been a hotspot, or the Western Cape in general. Would there have been a case to just shut them off, keep them at level four? And uh, what would the political fallout have been had that been the way we went? I think it would have been immense. <laughs> so I don't think that that was the option. And I do think that the option of basically requiring people to be more responsible and take a sort of a micro level approach to this and ensuring that you have the right measures at work, social distancing, I think is what the scientists and the modelers have said is the way we should be doing it right now. The Western Cape is is fascinating. It's intriguing what's happened there. And I think Neva's research um, discusses that quite in depth. And there are a couple of reasons it would seem for that. I mean, one of them I find fascinating is the fact that they aren't really tracing contacts um, quite as diligently as, as people in other, other provinces. And they are testing a lot more, but then they have a lot more infections to test. So there are a lot of nuances to, I think, the Western, to the Western Cape numbers. Um, but it's intriguing just how many multiples of elsewhere in the country it is. I mean, something is, is definitely, definitely skewed. Neva, I'm going to give you the last word because we've got a minute or two. I mean... Is the Western Cape a taste of things to come for the rest of the country, or has it got quite specific dynamics? No, I think it's. I think that's the point that what we saw in other countries generally was you can have a city that's out of control, and the rest of the country can be quite under control. So what happened in South Korea was they just locked down a city of 2.4 million because that was Daegu that was out of control, where the church was that you talked about. 
but then they managed to control it in the rest of the country. And even now in the U.S., for all this kind of idiotic things they're doing, New York is just in a completely different place from anywhere else. Huh? Like they have over 1,500 cases per 100,000. Most of the rest of the country, it's a couple of hundred per, per, per 100,000. And I mean, here, we're at like 30 per 100,000. So we really have space to get this right. But the one thing I would like to see is just much more vigorous action when something starts going out of control and not thinking about the politics, but thinking about how do we control that risk. That's all we have time for, but thank you very much to the panel. And please join us again next week for another edition of Editing Aloud. And stay safe meanwhile.